LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. Jesus focused more on succession than he did on success. And I think that's an issue in the church in America and leadership in America today. We focus on success without even thinking about succession. Jesus was just the opposite. If you look at his public ministry, that was it was not even successful. 120 people after three and a half years wouldn't have got him any book deal or invitation to speak at any conference. But that 120 became 120,000 because he focused on succession, knowing it was bigger than just his life. And I think that's something we got to give focus to. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vinoy, here with my co-host, Dan Eiten. Hey, we're excited here today to talk with Vance Pittman. Uh, Vance is the president of the SEND Network, which is the North American Mission Boards, or NAMS. Uh, they lead the church planting efforts there. Um, prior to this role, he planted and pastored Hope Church in Las Vegas, Nevada for 21 years. Vance, thank you so much for being here today. Tell us a little bit more about what you get to do with NAM and with SEND Network. Yeah, like you said, I've been a church planner pastor for the last uh, two decades, but now I've stepped into this new role about a year ago of leading the SIN Network, which SIN Network is uh, about 80% of what the North American Mission Board does, believing that the primary tool for seeing the kingdom of God expand in North America is the planting and multiplying of churches. So I get to oversee that arm of the North American Mission Board. We have uh, about 250 staff and field missionaries uh, that are working all over North America. We have about 1,200 planters currently in our pipeline of funding. Uh, Last year saw 700, I think, in 40 some odd new churches in North America. So yeah, that entire process of mobilizing churches to get them involved in the planting game and then the process of assessing, training, coaching, and fueling and funding planters. And then R&D, just developing strategies, wanting to be on the front end and the the, kind of the, the tip of the spear of what it looks like to engage missionally in North America through the planting of churches. So that's kind of my day-to-day role and love what I'm getting to do. I'm getting to live out for me. Uh, I've always been a pastor, but the last 20 years, I've been kind of a missionary pastor. And I've always told our church, I'm more missionary than pastor. And now I'm getting to kind of live out that real missionary calling on a day in and day out basis and really enjoying it. You know, as you're talking, Vance, you are working for North American Mission Board, but you also have the experience of, of Las Vegas. So I just, you know, before we even get into the questions, would love to hear a little bit about how that has shaped even the way that you are thinking about leading this initiative, because you are not where a lot of churches are that you're working with. Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Chandler. And one I get a lot because, you know, people don't think kingdom church planting and Las Vegas, like that's just not, those things don't really always go together. (laughs) But for me, even though a lot of people would look at the journey of our work in Las Vegas and would say, man, it's been very fruitful, very successful, whatever word you want to use, Las Vegas has been way better for me than I've been for Las Vegas because God's used it to change and transform my life. Living in Las Vegas is like being on the foreign mission field, except it's America. Everybody speaks English. You got restaurants. It's first first world. But most of the people have never heard about Jesus. They've never been exposed to the gospel. Most of them have never been to church. When I moved here, 95% of the city was non-Christian, 60% non-religious. Over a million and a half people have moved here since I moved here 22, 23 years ago. So it's exploding as a city. Ministry in Las Vegas is like reading the book of 1 Corinthians without your Baptist goggles on. Uh, It's messy. (laughs) 
everything that's going on in the church at Corinth is going on in the churches in <laughs> Vegas. But the beauty is there's a purity about the gospel because like on Sunday at Hope, we'll have three, 4,000 people gathering in worship and nobody came there because it's Sunday. There is no cultural Christianity in our city. Mm-hmm. Of the 4,000 people, every one of them are there because they either love Jesus or they're genuinely asking the question, is Jesus the answer to what's going on in my life? So we could have a two hour, three hour service. It doesn't matter. Nobody's leaving. They came there to be there for that moment and to sit under the teaching of the word, to be involved in worship. There's a hunger, a purity about the gospel. It's messy because they don't know all the do's and don'ts and they don't know, you know, for example, they don't know on Sunday, you don't walk out and say, pastor, that was one hell of a sermon today. Like they don't know that that's not an appropriate way to say that, but it's done from such a pure heart. Las Vegas changed my mind around this idea of the kingdom. Like I was always about the church, thinking the church was the end all be all. Wasn't until I got to Las Vegas that God began to help me understand the church is just a temporary tool established by Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom. The real end game is the kingdom of God around the throne of Jesus for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so, yeah, Las Vegas is an incredible place. Really, many of the cities in the West are like this, but incredible place to join in God's activity. We've now seen close to 5,000 people baptized into our fellowship uh, at Hope. So all these first-generation Christians, 54 languages in our fellowship alone. So it's multi ethnic, multi-generational, multicultural. It's a picture of what heaven's going to look like. So man, I've, I've thoroughly loved ministry in a place like Vegas. Man. So, so amazing. Also, you're getting a baseball team now. So that's, we a, that's are. A big news too. <laughs> we are. Uh, my two worlds are colliding. So I'm a big Las Vegas sports guy. I'm, I've, I'll, I'll be going to the uh, Stanley cup final games. I follow the hockey team. I follow the Raiders. And now I'm a big Atlanta Braves guy. And now we're getting the Oakland A's. It's going to be the Las Vegas A's. So my heart's going to be a little torn, but I'm always going to be a brave if they ever played in the World Series. But this the, just just recently, the Braves and the A's are actually playing each other. Oh, yeah. It was really ripping my guts out. So <laughs> that's amazing. Well, stays true to the Braves. I'm a Braves fan as well. So there love we that go. you're going to continue to root for them. No well, doubt. Vance, Vance, let's hop in here. Would love, you know, even as you're sharing all that, love what the Lord has done in your all's ministry in Las Vegas. Love what you guys are doing with Sin Network. And it's easy to look at what God is doing and go, man, I want to be where Vance is. But tell us about what that looked like for your journey there. What were the different leadership roles that you were in over the years that led you to where you are today? Yeah, for me, it you know, I started out as a senior in high school. I had my first kind of leadership job, if you will. I co-opted out of high school my senior year and actually managed a small pharmaceutical warehouse for a company. Uh, so I went to work every day at 12 o'clock, uh, senior year of high school, worked till six o'clock every day. And it was just a real small company, only had a couple of lines, but, but I oversaw their warehouse and it was kind of my first job, if you will, in leadership. And then it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I actually came to know Christ and began a relationship with Jesus. And then that that whole world began to change because I went to college. I'd grown up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor, but my mom and dad were first generation Christians. So I don't come from a long line of Christianity, but I'd seen my dad's life and thought I love the church, but I'd rather make more money. So I went to <laughs> college to get a degree. I was going to do radio, television and film. I'm loving all the podcast stuff now because uh, my first job out of high school was in radio. I worked uh, as, an, as an air personality for a radio station and thought that was going to kind of, I was kind of thinking sports radio was going to be where I was going. So I went to college to get a degree in that. 
came to Christ in college and God began to unsettle me. I began to sense a calling to ministry, um, then kind of did the Baptist track, if you will. I did student ministry for a while uh, and led student ministry from my first student ministry job. I had eight students in my first student ministry when I took that job. And my last job as a student pastor, we had three to four hundred students in our student ministry. Then went from that to uh, being a senior pastor, uh, pastored a church and then was a senior associate pastor of a church and then had the call of God to come be a church planner. So I was in leadership as a missionary. I led a team of 13 families that all relocated to Vegas together. That's one of the misnomers about church planting. People always associate a church plant with a planter, but really a biblical missiology, it's church planting teams. Mm-hmm. Paul in the New Testament is the greatest church planter who ever lived. And you never read the name Paul in the Bible without almost always the next word being and, because it's always Paul and a group of people that were with him and planting. So I led a team of 13 families that relocated to Vegas to join in God's activity. And that team of 13 families became a church plant that uh, when I turned it over to a a young guy that's now leading the church last year, uh, it's a church of about 4,000 people. We had 100 staff members on our team. Um, And now I'm in the new role that I'm in of being the president of Sin Network. And we've already talked about that a little bit. So those are kind of the everything from eight students to managing a warehouse to now being over uh, the largest church planning network in North America. So a little bit of it all. Yeah. You know, you, you've had a, like you said, a, a lot of experience in a lot of different places and you've kind of moved up in leadership positions. You know, is, was there a pivotal moment for you when you look back on any of those that kind of changed the way that you lead or changed your life? Yeah. Uh, when you think back over 30 plus years, there's probably a dozen answers I could give to that question of pivotal moments. But if I was going to try to summarize or, or kind of grab a hold of maybe the pivotal moment that changed leadership in my life. Uh, It would be going back to about 1998. I was pastoring my first church. I'd already done the student pastor thing, been in ministry for about a decade. And our church was growing. It was in a town of 4,000 people, but the church grew to running six or 700 people in worship on the weekends in a town of 4,000. Hmm. We'd baptized 300 plus people into the fellowship over the three years that I'd been there. It was exploding. Like, And I was at this stage in my leadership and ministry where I thought, okay, this is the launching pad to take me to the next bigger church that'll open hmm. the door to me to go into the next bigger church because that's just what everybody said. Like, As mm-hmm. soon as God started blessing, people started telling me, Oh, you're going to be the pastor here and you're going to go there. And so you just kind of begin to believe that. What I didn't know is not everybody in a church is excited when a church is growing. We had 13 deacons that chaired every major committee in our church and it led to a real crisis of leadership. I was this young guy that thought I knew more than I did. I was genuinely trying to lead them in the right way, but probably with my age and inexperience. And a lot of these guys were old enough to be my dad and granddad. I probably didn't do it all just right. But long story short, led to a real power struggle where they ultimately asked me to leave. And in the midst of this thriving, growing, exploding ministry where the people in the church thought everything was great, there was behind the scenes, this power struggle. And a long story short, in one night, I went from being the pastor that everybody thought was going to be the pastor at the next big church to being the pastor who was asked to leave. There were some accusations thrown around about things that were not true. And they 
ultimately admitted those things weren't true, but it was just a, a hard story. And, and one night was left with nothing but Jesus to come to the greatest discovery of my life. And that is that Jesus is enough. And up until that point for me, I needed Jesus and a thriving leadership position. I needed Jesus and a growing ministry. I needed Jesus and the next growth barrier. I needed Jesus and the next leadership opportunity. But it wasn't until that moment of brokenness that I learned, here's the lesson that changed everything for me. The primary call on my life is not to do something for Jesus. The primary call on my life is to be with Jesus. And everything Jesus wants to do through my life, he'll do out of the overflow of what he's doing in my life. And if you'd asked me up until that moment, what's the primary call on your life? I'd have said the primary call is ministry. It's doing something for Jesus. But the primary call wasn't ministry. The primary call was intimacy. Ministry is what he wanted to do out of the overflow of an intimate fellowship relationship with him. And that truly changed everything. I'm sitting in Las Vegas today, two decades on this side of a church plant that was born out of a moment of intimacy with the father, just reading the gospels one morning in a God time when God spoke to my heart about a call for the kingdom to be expanded in other cities. My wife and I said, yes. And 20 years later, here we are in Vegas and having enjoyed this. But if you'd asked me 20 years ago, write out the dream plan, Las Vegas would have never made my board because I'm from Alabama. You don't go to Las Vegas if you're from Alabama. And if you do, you don't tell anybody. Um, but here I sit 20 years later, Jesus had a plan that was born out of intimacy with him. And it was a moment of surrender to him that opened up a door for me to be in a place like Las Vegas that would have never been on my radar before. So the defining thing was that simple statement that the primary call is not ministry, it's intimacy. Ministry is what he does out of the overflow of intimacy. I even feel like that may give somebody listening freedom uh, who may feel called into ministry or maybe it's even called into the marketplace and go, man, success looks like X. If it's for somebody going into ministry, it's, it's that the Lord would grow this ministry business. It would have profits upon profits, but it's just faithfulness. You know, I feel like I've heard that over and over again. Faithfulness is not always, you know, all these people coming to your church. It could be Vance, what you just said, you know, I, I led well. And this is how it ended. And it taught me so much. And that's there's freedom in that for sure. A hundred percent, Chandler. What I like to say to young leaders when I'm talking to them is the greatest thing that you bring to your role as a leader is not your creativity, your strategic thinking, your experience, your education, your influence, your passion. The greatest thing you bring to your role as a leader is your personal intimate relationship with Jesus because everything he wants to do through you as a leader, he'll do in you. The, the key to learning about being a leader is before I can be a leader, I have to be a devoted follower. The, the key to my success as a leader is the devotion that I pursue Christ with as a devoted follower. And as a follower of Jesus, he then begins to lead through us in ways that we would never dream possible. That's so true. Well, let's go back to, to young Vance. Uh, you're just starting to lead. What was maybe one of the biggest mistakes as a leader getting started? <laughs> this is another one where we could spend a lot of time because I feel like I'm an expert uh, in this question <laughs> because I made a lot of mistakes. So I want to take you back to young Vance as a church planter. So I came here when I was 28 years old to plant the church in Las Vegas. So I'd already done the student ministry thing, been a senior pastor, but now I'm coming to Vegas as a church planter. I'm 28 years old, which is ironic because when the North American Mission Board tapped the church, my, my sending church was First Baptist Woodstock. When they 
they tapped that church, they said, you need somebody over 35 who's from the West, who's planted a church before. I was 28 <laughs> years old. I'd never been West of the Mississippi River, and I'd never even been a part of a church that planted a church. So like this, there's no way this should have worked. But when I got to Las Vegas, church planting is like giving birth. And it's like parenting. And if anybody listening to this that has kids, parenting is all consuming. It's not nine to five. Like it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of your life. You own it. Nobody but a parent can understand what it means to have a human life in front of you that totally depends on you. Well, in a spiritual sense, that's kind of what church planting is. Now, as a parent, in reality, that child belongs to the Lord and he's in control of that situation. But as the parent, you feel the weight of that. As a church planter, you feel the weight of that. So I launch into this thing of church planting and man, it's 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I had this chip on my shoulder that I was just going to work harder than anybody else. And we put the time in, like we worked hard. And I did that for a decade without switching gears. I went about 11 years and, and planting in Las Vegas, we've had a lot of incredible, miraculous success stories. But for every one of those, I can tell you a valley that we walked through from moral failures to economic collapses to literal floods of facilities and all kinds of things that we've experienced. And I just kept going. I kept my head down and I just thought, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard. And in 2012, 2013, my body just finally said enough. My doctors described it as a physical version of a mental breakdown. My body shut down. I actually wrote a book that told this story called The Stressless Life. It was released last year by Baker, but it, it, it tells the story of my own collapse. And I had to learn that rest is also a spiritual principle. Work is a spiritual principle, but rest is also a spiritual principle. And I'd seen a lot of laziness in ministry. And I just had this chip on my shoulder that I was going to change the paradigm for everybody. I even had a guy that was president of a company that left his company to a company that did 15, $20 million a year to come work for me on a staff team. And he said, Vance, I've worked with executives and I've just never seen anybody put the time in. Like I, I really worked hard, but I wore it as a badge of honor and didn't live the principle of rest and understanding that you, so my mantra now is work hard, rest hard. Like I schedule rest and I build rest. I had to reorg my entire life around a rhythm of work rest to get healthy balance in my life. And that's a lesson I wish I had learned early on. To follow up on that, so, you know, I, I helped plant a church in, in Washington, D.C., and I understand that, like, this is, I mean, th that really was my life, my identity in a lot of ways. And, you know, those first couple of years where it's you and a core team and you're trying to expand, like, you're never off. You're always on the phone with somebody or doing something. What, what advice would you give somebody, you know, as you serve these church planters around the country, you know, how in those first couple of years where that's even harder? harder to take that rest, how to, how to kind of manage that working hard, but rest hard kind of mindset that you brought up. Yeah, I think it's going to vary on each person uh, because every, all of us are wired differently and how to kind of build this into our lives. For me, I would encourage them, somebody like me, you have to put that in your schedule. As much as you schedule appointments, as much as you schedule time with the family, as much as you schedule time to sleep at night, you have to build rest and white space or margin into your calendar. So I had to begin to build that in 
on a systematic in a systematic way into my schedule. So weekly, I'm building white space just into my calendar. I'd built my calendar so much like I took pride in the fact that I didn't have a second to get from one meeting to the next meeting uh, and wore that like I was doing something. And then I looked at the light and here's the real I began to look at the life of Jesus. What we're talking about is not a scheduling organizational issue. We're talking about a Christ likeness issue because I looked at my life and I was always in a hurry. I looked at Jesus's life and he was never in a hurry. Hmm. Jesus had all kind of interruptions that weren't interruptions. They became a part of God's plan for the day. When I looked at my life, I didn't have time for interruptions. I was too busy. So I had to, in a Christ-like way, reorg my schedule around building white space into my calendar on a weekly basis, leaving margin for God's divine appointments and for rest. Then I had to build rest into my overall calendar. Things like I call them sanity weekends that my assistant blocks off on my calendar where you've had two weekends in a row where there was a wedding or a funeral or whatever. So this weekend, unless it's something that is a high level staff leader on our team, it's a no, like I can't do anything. It's blocked off. It's on my calendar. And that also gave me the freedom to say to people when they would ask, I could say, oh, I'm sorry, I've already got something on the calendar. Now, I didn't have to tell them what it was. (laughs) It's a sanity weekend. It's a nap. I needed it. I needed the freedom to say, hey, there's something on the calendar. I can't do that. So building that into the calendar and doing that in in areas of physical rest and spiritual rest, where you're building those retreats into your life. For me, it was a matter of making it a priority and then building a schedule around that. That's great. And I love I love sanity weekends. I'm going to try to incorporate that. <laughs> so getting back to our questions here, is there a book that you wish somebody would have given you when you started to lead, whether it was published at that time or not? Is there something that you yeah. wish you would have had? Without a doubt, based on what you've just heard me articulate, the book that I wish somebody had given me when I started was Replenish by Lance Witt, because it deals with the very issue that I'm describing. Uh, I'll, g- I'll give you a couple of quotes out of that book that were life changing for me, but one of them is we will never, never grow healthy churches with unhealthy leaders. We'll never grow healthy churches with unhealthy leaders. And then he said this, we have neglected the fact that a pastor's greatest leadership tool is a healthy soul. And I think one of the reasons that the church in North America is struggling today is because we have spiritually unhealthy leadership. When you look at the kingdom of God globally, there's only two continents in the world where Christianity is declining. One of them is North America. And North America has the most resources, the most buildings, the most budget, the most staff, the most degrees, the most education, the most experience. I mean, what's the deal? Why are we not seeing the kingdom expand? I think it's directly related to the spiritual health of those who are leading. And it's why today we're seeing an epidemic of people leaving the ministry, leaving leadership roles, because it's tough to lead from an unhealthy soul. And so, yeah, replenished by Lance Witt. I wish I'd have had that book when I started. Vance, I want to ask one more kind of question that we weren't planning on, but as we've been talking around church plants so much, and, and it's so much of your world, you've, you've lived in that world in Vegas, you're now working with planters. Maybe somebody's listening and they are wondering, hey, you know, I've never been a part of a church plant, or maybe they're called to ministry and going, man, I've, I've kind of wrestled with church plant, you know? I would love for you to just kind of share with a young leader, just if you had a mic in front of them, why should they care about church plants? And maybe for somebody, why should they give even their ministry to planting a church? 
you realize we could have just hijacked this podcast with that question because I, I can go off on this tangent for a while. <laughs> but I want to hear, it's exactly why. I want to yeah. hear your heart on this. Okay. I know it's so near and dear to your heart. Here's what I would say. The ultimate goal of the mission is the kingdom of God expanded in cities and nations all over the world. That's when you read the end of the book, Revelation, there's the kingdom, every tribe, tongue, people and nation around the throne of Jesus. That's what this whole thing is moving towards. The only tool Jesus gave us for the expansion of the kingdom is making disciples and planting churches. That's it. That's the only tool he gave us. That's the only methodology missiologically we have in scripture to engage cities, to make disciples, to see churches born, who then send them out to make engage cities, make disciples and see churches born. No one church can accomplish the mission by itself. So we have to collaborate and we have to multiply the church. Even a church like Hope, as fast as we were growing in Las Vegas, we would not even penetrate the lostness of Las Vegas without multiplying other churches. We have to multiply churches. So here's what I would say to every young leader. Why not? If the tool Jesus gave us for the expansion of his kingdom is the multiplication of the church, why not be involved in the church being multiplied? And I don't mean you got to go be the pastor. We need to mobilize missionary teams. I need pharmacists and school teachers and contractors who will use their leadership position, go leverage it in a community where they can become a part of a team that's making disciples to see churches born. Unfortunately, a lot of what's called church planting in North America is really not church planting. It's starting church services. That's not the same thing. Starting a church service is not planting a church. Biblical missiology, planting a church starts with a city. You engage that city with the gospel. You make disciples and churches are born as a byproduct. Jesus never said, go plant churches. He said, go into the cities and make disciples. And he said, I'll build my church. I'll birth churches. When we think about church planting as starting church services, people think, oh, I need, you got to have a music guy. You got to have a preacher. You got to have a student guy. I'm not any of those things. No, we need missionaries to take their job, skill, and passion where they live, work, and play, leverage it for the sake of the kingdom being expansion and making disciples in cities that then birth new churches that then send out and do the same thing. So to any young leader that's listening to this, why not take the job and skill God's given you, move that to a city where you can leverage that for the expansion of the kingdom and making disciples that can lead to the birthing of churches. And that's what we want to be about at Sin Network is mobilizing church planting teams teams filled with leaders. There's not enough resources to send fully funded church planters to accomplish the mission. We need co-vocational leaders who will leverage their job, skill, and passion for the sake of the kingdom. That's amazing. I mean, my, my church was planted out of uh, the Summit Network in, yeah. into D.C. And we the, the Summit Church there in Raleigh, North Carolina, we had about 30 young adults move from Raleigh to D.C. with kind of that mission mindset. And those those people helped start that church and created it. And I feel like it's been a powerful moment in their lives to be a part of totally. something from the, from the scratch. But you do also have to break the consumerism of, hey, I just want to go to this church and have the best music and the best preaching and, you know, the best experience um, versus the like, hey, I'm going to go live missionally and go and, and plant something, which could be yeah. 
really hard for people to kind of make that jump, but I don't know. When we brought, when we brought 13 families to Vegas, I had to do some serious detoxing of those people because they'd come from thriving churches in the Bible belt, which meant these were leaders from thriving churches in the Bible belt. They were given 10, 15, 20 hours a week to their church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night activities. So they show up in Vegas. They got like 20 hours of their week. They don't know what to do with. And they said, I mean, we didn't even have a church and they're wanting to start children's choir. And I'm like, (laughs) hang on, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to Home Depot, get a job and just start meeting people. I need you to volunteer at the local school. I need you to coach little league baseball. The first 13 families I led to Christ in Las Vegas, I led to Christ coaching little league baseball, not preaching sermons. Hmm. But we don't train people how to live missionally like that to engage cities with the gospel. But that's the future of church planning in North America. One more uh, kind of larger question before we switch to our quick hitters here for you. But what's one misconception that you had as a young leader about what it looked like to actually lead? Yeah. So when I started out in leadership, I'd, I'd hear people say this, man, pastoring or leadership is lonely. And so I just had this idea that if you're going to be a leader, you got to be alone and that it's going to be lonely, that you're always by yourself. And listen, leadership is lonely. But here's what I learned to complete the sentence and what I now teach young leaders and church planners. Leadership is lonely, but it cannot be done alone. Leadership demands that we bring other people to the table to lead alongside of us. And I wish I'd learned earlier that collaborative team leadership is really more the biblical model that you see both modeled by Jesus in his relationship with his disciples. And then you see in Pauline leadership and seeing the mission advance in the New Testament, there was always a collaborative leadership. Even when you look at the New Testament model for church, it's always elders plural in church singular. There was always this idea of plurality of leadership in the local church in the New Testament. And I just had this idea that you had to do it alone. And so I didn't build relationships. I didn't have friends. And now for the last 15, so 20 years of ministry for me, because I missed it the first decade, I've enjoyed like some of my best friends are the executives that lead alongside me now. Uh, They did it as pastors on our church. Now they're doing it with me at Sin Network. But people that I'm getting to do this with are some of the, the, the senior executive vice president for Sin Network has been my best friend for 17 years. He was my executive pastor at Hope here in Vegas. And we're doing life together and we're leading together. So yes, leadership can be lonely, but you cannot do it alone. And you've got to build those relationships that encourage you and keep you going. Such a great reminder. And it is something you hear often, but that doesn't mean you keep people at arm's distance at all. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's move to the quick hitter questions here. These are going to be short one minute answers and we'll get started with this one. So what is your ideal daily routine? What time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? Yeah. So uh, this is a hard one for me to answer because I kind of have two routines. So a lot of my life, I spend about 150,000, 180,000 miles a year on an airplane. So I'm in, I'm traveling a lot and that travel has a different kind of schedule to it than when I'm home. So I'm going to give you the one when I'm in Las Vegas, when I'm, I'm here in my office doing stuff like we're doing today. For me, it's usually up around six, six thirty, somewhere in that window. And then it begins in time with the Lord. You know, you, you got to, carve out that time to be with Jesus. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't call us to do something for him. He called us, so he could do something through us. And that happens out of the overflow of our fellowship relationship with him. So time alone with 
the Father. Again, as a Christ-likeness issue that he modeled for us, his time alone with the Father. Uh, and then that would move into usually around 8.30, 8.45 would kind of begin whatever the appointments are for the day. And then I would walk through those those meetings. Like today has been a day when I've done two podcasts. I've done, I'm helping out uh, the Raiders right now are in between chaplains. And so I'm doing some work for them. So I just run over and let a Bible study at the Raiders practice facility uh, as they're going through summer camps. And then I got a couple of coaching calls with planters that'll happen this afternoon. And then I have a one-on-one with my assistant. Uh, so that would kind of be a normal day for me. It'd be kind of mostly now remote. So I'm doing it through Zoom. But when I'm preaching in a week when I'm preaching, again, that schedule is going to adjust because I would carve out blocks of time to have schedule to preach. So for me, it because the travel and the week in and week out is always going to be different. I try to make sure that I cover the big blocks. So I think of my weekend big blocks. There are going to be obviously time alone with the Lord, time with the family, time for my health. So my family's kind of gotten into this CrossFit thing. So we do that four to five nights a week. And then the administrative stuff, you kind of work in, in the work. And then there's the blue sky stuff where you're kind of working on the work and trying to make sure all those big blocks are covered. So we're recording this right after Memorial Day. Did you, I have to ask, did you end up doing Murph? over Memorial Day ah, We did. We did it. <laughs> so my daughter-in-law who works out with us, she is a nurse and she was going to have to work Memorial Day. So we did it last weekend. Uh, we did do Murph. Now I did a, this was the least scaled Murph I've done. <laughs> so I still don't wear the 20 pound vest, but I did do everything this time. The only thing I scaled was I did a, I did a green band for the pull-ups. Okay. Uh, so I did use a banded pull-up, but did everything else uh, the way you're supposed to do without the vest. I know for the true <laughs> CrossFit people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm one of those guys that does CrossFit. I'm just not in the cult. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yep, so, yep. Um, but I, uh, so yeah, I think I finished just under an hour. I think is what it took me. So that's amazing. It was a, it's a killer workout, man. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, what's uh, do you have a favorite personality test? If so, what what are your results from that test? Okay, I'll give you my results. I'll tell you what my favorite is, but I'm gonna also tell you that I'm not the biggest fan of any of the personality yeah. tests, and the reason is because I just watch Christians begin to put labels and categories on people Hmm. that don't include the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to work change out in people's lives. Like even in watching my own test over the years, like when I took my favorite one is the 16 personalities that, that I, that you do. That's the one that you can be executive or you can be a, a protagonist or those things. So mm-hmm. early on in my ministry, I, I was hardcore executive. Now, depending on when I take it, I take it every so often. Sometimes it scores me executive. Sometimes it scores me protagonist on the Enneagram. I'm a solid eight with a little three mixed in there. But again, I just, I think this Christian, Christians, we have to be careful because there's who I am in my flesh and there's who I am empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yep. And that can be transformative over time. And I think we have to be real careful with those. Vance, what's an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? Yeah. So I was mentored for about 15 years by a guy who was an, a retired HR executive from Apple computer. And he taught me this, that's been game changing. It's what's called the skip level interview. Every 18 months, I skip over everybody who directly reports to me and do a 90 minute interview, the 17 same questions with the people who report to the people that report to me. 90% of what you learn in those interviews, you already know. The 10% you learn you did not know is worth its weight in gold. And some of the greatest organizational shifts at Hope Church that took place over two decades were born out of those skip level interviews. 
That's great. I definitely want to learn more about that afterwards. That's great. Looking at your phone, is there a favorite app that you have on your phone? Without a doubt. If you looked at mine, the one that's used the most, it's an app called The Score. And it's basically a sports app that you can get the score of any major sporting event. I mean, baseball, football, hockey, whatever you, PGA. And I'm checking, sports is my outlet. So like when I'm not doing ministry, I'm looking at sports. I follow recruiting. I follow all the drafts. I follow all the signings. I'm a sports nerd in an alternative life. I would love to have been a sports executive or somebody in in the world of sports. I love it. So I'm on the score that sports app all the time. I was wondering if I was going to throw this question in now that you said that I'm going to, if you were going to, you mentioned earlier sports radio, you're like, man, I would have loved what team or sport would you have loved to kind of like focus on in sports radio? Ooh, see, so I would have said either Atlanta Braves or Alabama football. That would have been the easy answer for me for most of my life. In the last five years, I have been bitten by the hockey bug and Mm. I am a season ticket holder of the Vegas Golden Knights. We're recording this, like you said, just after Memorial Day. We just won. We're playing in the Stanley Cup finals starting this Saturday. I am a rabid hockey fan, (laughs) like a rabid hockey fan. So I'd probably still go the other way, but man, hockey is right there. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. What's been the best book you've read in the past six months? It's a book that I'm actually rereading again. It's Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Gentle and Lowly. I read it for the first time two years ago. I just in the last six months read it again. That book by itself, I went through a, a lot of us went through a dark time a couple years ago in leadership. It was just a tough time to be leading in the midst of all the COVID, the cultural stuff going on in America, everything was happening. Man, that book by itself, I went away on a sabbatical and that book, God used that to really cause me to just fall in love with Jesus all over again. And I'm rereading it again now, but by far, that's the best book I've read in the last six months, really the best book I've read in the last two to three years. Last question for you here today. So think about somebody who's going into their very first leadership position. What's one piece of advice you'd want to give them? Only one. I got two. Let's see. Uh, All right, here, I'll I'll give this one. You cannot lead what you do not live long-term. You can fake it in the short run, but you can't lead what you don't live long-term. Authenticity and leadership is important. If you're not living it, you won't be able to lead it over the long haul. It's got to be real and authentic in you for you to be able to lead it over the long haul. So that's what I'd say. Just to throw the second one in there, Jesus focused more on succession than he did on success. And I think that's an issue in the church in America and leadership in America today. We focus on success without even thinking about succession. Jesus was just the opposite. If you look at his public ministry, that was it was not even successful. 120 people after three and a half years wouldn't have got him any book deal or invitation to speak at any conference. But that 120 became 120,000 because he focused on succession, knowing it was bigger than just his life. And I think that's something we got to get focused to. Glad you threw the second one in there. Well, Vance, thanks for joining us on the podcast today and sharing about your leadership journey. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. And if it has, head on over wherever you're listening to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review so other leaders like yourself can find the podcast. And we'll see you next time. 